This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. It's a daily show about news and culture and whatever flits across my consciousness. It's good. It's funny. You'll like it. So recently we had a series of conversations with Fordham University criminologist John Pfaff. The issue was mass incarceration and how reform's just not that easy. At some point, we're going to have to start asking how are we going to treat violent offenders differently? And no one is really talking about that at all. Subscribe to The Gist at iTunes.com slash Panoply or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. If you go to 1768 Hobart, you will still see in front of it a couch. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual, my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. I'm back. Ezra is back. Um, we had some complaints about the sound levels on, on last week's episode, so we're going to try to speak directly into our microphones, and we also fired Dylan, so, <laughs> you know, there will be no more problems like that. Self-critique session got, got intense. We've got a great show for you today. We're, we're going to spice things up a little bit by substituting a, a data set of the week instead of a, a white paper of the it's week. anarchy here. It's, it's uh, you know, we, we, we like to get wild, uh, especially as the, as the days grow shorter. It's important to kind of keep the shows interesting. You know, but first, uh, I, I think we are going to talk about an important sort of long-term policy question that some people have written in to ask us about, and it's the question of when should people be retiring? Sure. Though before I say that, I got to listen to the weeds as a listener last week, and I learned a lot about universal basic income, so thank you all. What but was did- your favorite fact? Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't, don't put me on the, don't put me on the spot. It, it like was that. probably inaudible due to poor levels. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Anyways. I, I like the conceptual question that was raised of there being a kind of a mirror image problem in the way the two parties think about a universal basic income. That what you have on the on the right is an effort to sort of bring down the government. And what you have on the left is an effort to make it much more expansive. And I think it's an interesting example of a policy that people constantly claim two-sided support for. But what the two sides believe they're supporting is very, very different when you get into the details. Because the details here, I mean, it's weird to talk about eliminating Medicare entirely as a detail, but that is one of the details that would be that would be at work here. So it is a good podcast. Uh, I listen to it. If people have not, they should. All right, um, and then fact. Sarah Cliff will will test you on whether you had I will. good comprehension and memorization <laughs> of it. That's what I'm here for. It's all it's all going to be on the exam. So I want to talk about a policy that I think of as kind of at the center of, insofar as Washington, you know, the way people talk about it as a singular entity has an ideology, a sort of smack in the center of it, which is raising the retirement age. If you look at the Republican race for president this year, you see a very, very large number of candidates who have already proposed raising the retirement age, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, I believe, Rand Paul, uh, a number of them, although I don't want to get anybody wrong in memory here. But if you kind of go back into recent budget deals and or at least proposed budget deals like Simpson Bowles, you also see it come up a lot. It's one of these things that 
in Washington and in budget conversations is spoken of as a no-brainer, and people present the fact that we haven't done it more recently. It's worth noting that the retirement age is currently being raised a little bit every year because of the 86 deal, I think it is. 82? 82. Sometime in the 80s. Yeah, sometime in the 80s. The Reagan-Tip O'Neill deal. We were, we were small children. <laughs> um, but this is the kind of thing that people talk about, uh, us not doing it, as an example of everything being broken in Washington. Alan Simpson, who is a co-chair of the Simpson Bowles Commission, a former senator, said, if you can't raise retirement age to 68 by the year 2050 without the AARP losing their marbles, then the country just won't make it. Um, I think his numbers were off because I think we're raising retirement age around that anyway. But nevertheless, his point there is taken, except that I think raising the retirement age is a really bad policy. I think that it is a really cruel policy that speaks to some kind of deep class biases in the Washington political conversation. And I want to, as a, as a framing note, say I'm actually not against cutting Social Security. I'm not sure we don't spend too much on it. I really think the spending on it is poorly distributed. But I think raising the retirement age is a policy that, as opposed to a simple targeted cut, has become very popular because of some very sort of bad, lazy thinking. You'll often hear people say, for instance, that we need to raise retirement age because life expectancy has gone up so much since Social Security was put in. But since you know roughly the 70s, which is close to the last time we raised it, life expectancy gains have been distributed by income level. You've seen, I think, a six-year life expectancy gain for the top half of the income distribution and a 1.3-year life expectancy gain for the bottom half of the income distribution. But also, there's a very sharp class skew, not just in life expectancy, but in what does it mean to keep working into your right. deep 60s. So, so Alan Simpson, who's a, a sort of a, a delightful character, after a fairly extensive career in elected office, went and took a job at the uh, the Harvard Institute of Politics, which he was running when, when I was an undergraduate there. So I, I got to know him a little bit there. And he was an old guy at that time. And he had a good Senate pension. And you can always, as an ex-senator, get a check from here or there, do a little lobbying, a little consulting right. if you want to. But he had a real passion for this project of engaging young people in the political system. And after that, he stepped down, but he did the Simpson-Bowles Commission. And I don't know if they paid him or not, but you know, he, hard wasn't, work. He, he wasn't doing it because he was out of money and needed <laughs> needed to get some food, right? He, he really was interested in this idea of barnstorming the country to try to get this entitlement cutting project. That's great if you're Alan Simpson, right? On the one hand, they're, they're jobs that they're difficult in the sense that you have to get up in the morning and, and to some extent fly around, but it's not physically taxing work. And it's it's very engaging to him, right? He's a, he's a privileged person who has the opportunity to sort of work on projects that he thinks are really important and meaningful. But when you talk about raising the retirement age, you're talking about, for a lot of people, another year as a line cook, another right. year as a cashier at Walmart, another year as a long-distance truck driver. And there's nothing wrong with having jobs like that, but they don't inspire the same kind of feeling and commitment in people. And you're really talking about two sharply different universes of work. And when you look at the people making the decisions about this, this is probably pretty obvious, but they fall into Alan Simpson's category, not the line cook category. These are people who are legislators. They've decided to run for office again. I think it's hard work showing up to campaigning. You know, it's long hours. It's yeah. long hours for sure. Travel. But like, they're, most of them are not doing it because they need to draw a salary. They're doing it because legislating is an interesting 
exciting and they job. like it right and i mean like, like the average age of senators is like, like comically old right like people I, I don't know what it seems like an odd job to me honestly but the people who have right. those and jobs obviously yes. love it and their experience working these people who are going to decide you know are we going to raise the retirement age is very different from so, a lot of people there who would have it raised and there are numbers around this so the what they call the normal retirement age for social security is 65 or roughly there it's a it, I think it's up. I think like it's up a little bit because now. of because of the way we're raising the retirement age even now. But you can get maximum benefits by retiring at 70 and you can begin taking social security what's called early by by retiring at 62. Yeah, you um, get a smaller check. And if you look at when people really retire, the average age of retirement according to Gallup is 62. That to me is a very powerful revealed preference. They are retiring as early as they can. For most people, they want to get out of the labor force. They don't enjoy their job. They want to spend a couple of years. And, and if you're on, in the poor half of the income distribution, the actuarial table suggests that that is going to be fewer years than if you are richer. And they, they want to spend some years in, in retirement. And it's this is, I think, the reason that the discussion of the retirement age, and particularly the discussion of it, obvious common senseness rubs me the wrong way. And in, in, in a way, a lot of policy discussions that I just kind of disagree with don't. If you look around Washington, not just in the House and the Senate, but you look at think tanks, you look at journalism, people don't retire at 62, at 65. I'm a long way from retirement, so it's hard to say what my preference will be at that point. But Matt, you and I, we, we were doing this kind of writing when nobody was paying us to do it in college, right? We started out as, as bloggers. We, we are very lucky to have the work that pays us be work that we love to do. And, and that's a tremendous privilege. But for people who kind of live to work as opposed to work to live, I think it is very easy to approach a cut like this and think it is painless. And it's one reason I'm much more comfortable with a cut that fundamentally what a cut aimed at the retirement age does is it is a cut that targets people who hate their jobs. Because if you don't hate your job, it's just not going to hurt you very much. But I would just be more comfortable with a straightforward cut. If you just said people in the top half of the income distribution are going to make this much less from Social Security going forward, or another policy that you could do that actually ends up closing more of the Social Security shortfall, about, about twice as much as raising the retirement age to 70, is to lift the cap on payroll tax income. So people make more than, and I might get this number a little bit wrong from memory, I think it's around 115, but it might have gone up a little bit in recent years. But people make around 115, don't pay payroll taxes above that threshold. If you lifted that cap, it'd be a very big increase on the kind of people who are having this tax discussion. It'd be a very big increase on members of the Senate. It'd be a big increase on people who are high up at think tanks. It'd be a big increase on journalists who are doing well. And yet there's a lot less enthusiasm for it. And I think this is a place where just quietly you see class preferences really affecting what Washington thinks is an obvious idea versus what it thinks is a sort of a class warfare idea. But I think that it's worth trying to be a little clear about something that I think liberals don't always understand about one of the reasons why cutting Social Security in general is such a passion point for, for certain people, which is I, I went to... Um, an event uh, earlier this year over the summer, and I heard Elizabeth Warren giving a, a talk, and it was a very big picture talk. And she was trying to lay out, you know, a sort of a progressive, liberal, pro-big government agenda for economic growth. And, you know, you can sort of imagine how it goes, right? She's talking about infrastructure. She's talking about education. She's talking about health. She's talking about basic research. And it's a good speech. You know, you, you could look it up. And she talks about regulation, too. Her idea is, okay, 
government has an affirmative role to play, boosting the economy and in making America the, the great society that that it is, not the the amazing place that it is. That's something you know, like liberals really believe in, and it's something that more moderate, more centrist people. Part of what makes them more moderate people is that they appreciate that liberals are onto something with this. That this conservative cut everything uh, approach is wrong. But it's not true that spending money on helping old people not work boosts the economy. And that's really one of the main things that the federal government spends money on. If you look at Social Security, you look at Medicare, and you look at the portion of Medicaid that is going to senior citizens, it's a huge swath of the non-military side of the budget. And it not only doesn't boost the economy, right? It actively impairs the economy. The economy meaning GDP. Like GDP would be higher if all those people would get off the golf course and go work at Walmart, right? And that's the reason why establishment thinking, right, which is very influenced by the views of the business community, very influenced by the desire of politicians to generate economic growth, is always so interested in targeting these programs. Because if you could take money out of paying people to not work and put it into investments in human capital, investments in infrastructure, things like that, you would have a real sort of boon to the growth rate. And to make the case against that kind of move, you have to make the case against economic growth, which I think is not impossible to do, but it isn't something that liberals are super comfortable doing. I think that there is another liberal idea on this that has pushed the conversation, particularly around Social Security, in a direction of weird fixes that can be sold as technical, the retirement age, but also something else we could talk about, change CPI. And that is, there is a very pervasive liberal idea that the reason Social Security and Medicare are strong programs is that they are universal and that it is really important to keep this kind of abstract concept of universality as represented in the precise current distribution, more or less, of benefits in order to keep the programs from losing their support among the upper middle class, among the rich. The, the idea is that they've developed this hugely broad coalition in a way that programs for the poor really haven't. And as such, if you begin to cut those programs, you begin to do means testing on them. If you, if you did a targeted cut as upper income seniors, you would begin, even if that cut would normally be something that liberals would support, you would begin eroding this kind of very, very broad and very powerful coalition that protects these programs. I have looked at this from a number of different angles and tried to do a lot of reporting on it, and I just don't think it's true. I cannot find the evidence of all these other programs that are large but much more targeted at the poor that are so weak that they're constantly being cut into pieces. I mean, if you listen to Republican rhetoric, which I, I think on this is actually to some degree correct in telling, when they talk about Medicaid and food stamps, what they see is a sort of unending year-on-year expansion of the welfare state. And they see that because it has been an unending year-on-year expansion of the welfare state. These two programs have, under both Republicans and Democrats, been expanded significantly. And so I actually think that, that one thing that keeps this discussion from just being a normal discussion about, well, if we need to cut spending or raise taxes, how do we do it? Who should we do it on? Is this idea that if you allow there to be something that is framed as a cut that cuts you know, upper-income people, you'll shatter this idea that Social Security is a universal program, and then you'll shatter its political coalition. But I just think this kind of spending is a lot tougher to cut in, in American politics. And honestly, over 
extended periods of time easier to expand than a lot of other people do. It, you know, Medicaid has gotten a lot bigger in recent years. Food stamps have gotten a lot bigger. Social Security Disability Insurance, which is a, a little bit of a midway program here, has also, for reasons some people like and some people don't, gotten a lot bigger. I'm not sure the universality argument goes as far as people want it Although to. Although I would push back on that a little bit, particularly focused on Medicaid, where I think it actually, I would argue it actually is easier at this point to make changes that cut Medicaid, or we've just accepted less of a standard of care for Medicaid patients than we do for Medicare. So for example, Medicaid typically pays less than Medicare, and that's just a standard fact, and that means that Medicaid patients don't get as much access to doctors. There are fewer doctors who take Medicaid than take Medicare. Another great example of this contrast, I think, is, uh, this is going to get really in the weeds, but this is our podcast. But if you look at the Medicare doc fix, which is this cliff that we hit every, mm -hmm. we used to hit every year where there wasn't enough money to fund Medicaid. Congress would always find the money. They would always find the money. They would always be able to keep payments steady. You saw the exact opposite happen with Medicaid, where there was this kind of payment bump for primary care doctors as part of the ACA. And they were also facing a cliff. They were also looking at this cut to primary care Medicaid doctors. And all the interests around Medicaid really tried this to make this a doc fix. They tried to say, you can't cut these reimbursements. Patients are going to lose out. And they lost. Congress let those payments fall. So I think I would give a little more credence to those concerns. That I'm, yeah. I'm going to hew to a wise middle ground here. <laughs> yes. I, I think that the issue is not so much program cuts, but it's program quality, right? That when you have public services that middle class people use, the government tries to make them work well, right? And when they don't work well, it's a big freak out. If you remember back during the original sequester, huge across the board cuts to everything. Poor moms could not get their kids into preschool. The political system did not give a flying fuck because it does not care. In a really fundamental way, it does not care what happens to poor children. And it children. often doesn't know. Right. But airport security lines were getting too long, and they fixed the fuck out of that. You know what I mean? Because... Members of Congress and donors, like they fly on airplanes a lot, right? So they really care. So I think that if you can make financial cuts to Medicare that still have upper income senior citizens using the Medicare program, you know, you could have more cost sharing, things like that. But as long as there's still a benefit to them to, in some sense, being in Medicare, you preserve what's most important about it, which is that if suddenly doctors won't touch Medicare, the alarm bells go off. But what you don't want is for programs, important programs in people's lives to reach the status of the city bus in Cleveland where it's a totally marginalized social service for people who are not participating in mainstream society, and nobody has any idea if it works well. I mean, not to single you out. I bet, I bet the Cleveland transit system, which <laughs> I assume are big fans of the weeds, were listening, did not expect I have, to take I, that I, blow I, right I, there. I have, I have ridden the bus. <laughs> I, I try to make a point when I go places of checking out their local bus systems. And, you know, I, honestly, like, God bless the, the bus drivers in Tulsa who were really nice to me and are trying to do a good job. But but you see that if you have these cities, right, not like New York, but cities where, quote unquote, everybody has a car and drives, quote unquote, everywhere. Actually, there's like poor people riding the bus and it turns into garbage. And it would be a problem if healthcare for senior citizens reached that kind of status. I, I agree. And, and I, I very much agree, particularly on program quality, although I, I have a slightly different read on the Medicaid story, which I think is an upward trajectory, even as it's been a much cheaper program for a long time, recovering many more people through it. Obamacare did in, increase 
reimbursements in certain, I think, specialties and parts of the program. And, and I think the, the overall trend of these is towards expansion, even if they start much more limited. I mean, Medicaid at its outset was a really limited program, and it's become a pretty big entitlement. But but you, you both are definitely right about the quality dimension of this. But that's why, I mean, it's not a binary thing. And this is why, again, I think that the, the discussion over Social Security is odd. Right now, Social Security is a much worse deal for rich seniors and poor seniors. I mean, right now, the program is already a substantially progressive program. And there's no quality. And there's, right. And it's <laughs> I mean, just, it's just money. <laughs> it's just money. But that it's really well done in that way. Sure. I mean, and there is an issue, right? Food stamps, once you're on them, are often pretty efficiently administered. But there are places, and this is a lot to do also, I think, with whether you make a program state, federal, or just federal. There are states that make it incredibly difficult to sign up for food stamps mm -hmm. versus places that make it pretty easy. But under George W. Bush, the actual distribution of those benefits was, I believe this is right, made electronic, which was a huge improvement. George W. Bush tried to take the stigma out of the program by renaming mm -hmm. it SNAP. He tried to make it more like a debit card so you weren't going with this very stigmatized looking little voucher. He, he actually did, I think, some really good work there. But I, I think that we are so far from a place where you would, through doing just more straightforward cuts, be changing anything significant about the political equilibrium underlying Social Security that I think we end up embracing pretty bad policies in order to stay away from this kind of political fear that that a lot of liberals have. You know, so I mentioned Chain CPI earlier and which is a, a way of changing the inflation, the cost of living increases within social security. And similarly, the retirement age people are like uh, people justified as a technical fix. You're just we live longer so the retirement age should go up a little bit. And I just think it would be better to just be a little bit more straightforward and honest about what people want to do. If you want to do a cut, just say what the cut is and we can argue about what that cut is. If you want to do a tax increase, do the tax increase, say what it is, and argue about that tax increase. But there is this effort, I think, to make pretty complex esoteric changes where the reason they are being proposed is because they are complex, is because mm -hmm. they sell in a, in a certain kind of way. But that often ends up meaning that in order to hit that mark, you end up having to have a much stranger distribution of the pain than you would normally want. I think in a normal world, people will not say, let's target our social security cuts at people with very miserable jobs. But they do that because it allows them to make this other political argument that, oh, this isn't really a cut. This is just keeping up with life extension trends. We should perhaps say a word about this chain CPI idea, although there's probably more weeds there than we can we can fully get into. And you can't I can't even cut those weeds. I, I need to I, I need to come prepared with a good mathematically correct example. <laughs> but the basic idea is that Social Security, when you first claim benefits, you get a check, which the size of the check is determined by how much taxes you paid and by how old you were when you started taking benefits and a couple other things it's your related income. to your income, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, also like your marital status. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty complicated formula. But so it gives you an initial check. And then what happens is that every year that check gets adjusted upwards in line with the consumer price index, which is the measurement of inflation that comes out most frequently and that is most well known. But it's most well known because it's the oldest one that the government publishes. And in subsequent years, they developed more technically sophisticated methods, including what's, what's called chaining, which is to try to account for the fact that when the relative prices of things change, what people buy also changes, right? So if the price of cheap 
terrible cheese goes up a lot, and the price of really fancy cheese only goes up a little. Normal people are going to shift and start using more fancy cheese and a little bit less cheap cheese as, as part of the, the response to that, right? And so the conventional CPI doesn't account for that kind of consumer behavior. So if you use what's called the chain CPI or the one the Fed uses, which is a, a different chain index, you basically reach the conclusion that inflation is a little bit lower. So a, a popular idea is, well, if we switch inflation measurements, then inflation turns out to be lower, so we send checks that are smaller. And there's like two issues about this. One is the, the technical economics of chaining versus not chaining. And the other, this is to Ezra's point, is that this is like a lot of work, and it's very complicated, and, and running through the math is weird. And what it all comes down to is they want people's checks to be 0.5% smaller right. in their year-to-year -year increases, right? And it's actually much easier to explain both the pros and the cons of that, right? The, the cons are that people will have less money. The pros <laughs> is that the government will have more money. And it's across the board, right? So it, that's actually very simple to debate, right. whereas debating the technical merits of the inflation indexing thing is is really weird. But that is a feature, not a bug of it. That, right. That's what I don't like. That is that is why they do that. And, and then you end up with these weird situations where you have all these complex formulas like bumping into each other, like what we had with uh, right. Medicare this year, where you have a price, you have a cost increase to Social Security that doesn't happen, and then Medicare is tethered to that in some way, and then Medicare yep. benefits are all of a sudden costing like 150% more, and you end up with these very bizarre situations that would not have happened if you just said, okay, we're going to cut Social Security 0.05%. I didn't know this, but until recently, they didn't do cost of living adjustments for Social Security. The checks were just fixed in nominal terms. And then Congress would on the fly say, oh, we're bumping benefits oh, because of inflation. Good well, or like, no, it was like the minimum wage. Oh, You know, where it would have yeah. this weird sawtooth, right? And so in the 70s, inflation was getting really high and they decided, oh, we need a, like a more automatic system. But the idea at the time was that that would actually restrain Social Security mm -hmm spending, that it used to be that there would just kind of always be this political push, the way there is now with the minimum wage, where Democrats really like the minimum wage issue, and we'll be like, oh, yeah, we got we to help the seniors out. And so they, they switched to this inflation indexing. And now the conventional view is that the inflation indexing somehow makes the benefits <laughs> too generous, and, and they want to change it around. But I think the favorite, my sort of favorite slash least favorite hide the ball move on this is that everyone's social security plan, right? You can make the most hardcore, stone cold, budget cutting Republican in Washington. And they are telling you that if you are 55 years old, that 10 years from now, you can start getting social security and you can keep getting it for 25, 30, 40 years. And that across this 50 year time span, you are not going to see any cuts under their plan. Right. And that's not the view they take toward any other kind of program, right? Right. If they want to cut food stamps, they're cutting food stamps tomorrow. And it's so, a, so I just want to clarify what yeah. you said because it, it, I think it's important, but it's not intuitive. Virtually all of the Republican budget plans right now that do things like Medicare premium support, right now virtually none of the Republican budget plans touch Social Security at all. Like if you look at the Ryan budget plan, it used to – Ryan was a big Social Security privatizer back But like in the Jeb's day. Social Security plan, yeah. Christie's Social Security but, plan. But now that they're starting to come out with them, all of them say that – None of this affects anyone over 55, right? It right. all begins for people who are 54 and younger. Right. So it's not just that it doesn't Whereas take effect cut health for 10 insurance, years. It's like next year. Right. Like right. repeal Obamacare is like repeal Obamacare right. now. It's not like, oh, you can have Obamacare for a decade. But and also then because people stay retired out. for a long time. Right. I think it's often written about as if they're saying, okay, there's a 10-year grace period and then it phases right. in. But no, they're saying it never phases in right. for this huge – like a 
generation or two generations of people. But this speaks to which a, is weird. This I mean, speaks to a political coalition issue. I think a, a very interesting tension in the Republican Party right now is it it is simultaneously the party of government cutting, right, and old people, right, <laughs> and. It, old people rely very heavily on a lot of government programs. And so Republicans have come up with this kind of maneuver where they say to their senior voters, okay, none of these changes will affect you. It's just for those young people you don't really like. And, and that we don't really we don't really need right, right now. And, and so I remember when there was a lot of, when Obamacare passed, actually, there was a lot of smart, wonky conservatives were upset about how the Cadillac tax was being delayed until 2018. And they argued, and we're seeing some of this now, they argued, well, if it's delayed until 2018 and this bill is passing in, what did it pass in, 2010? 2010. 2010. Yeah, okay. Come on, Ezra. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 2010, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of time to repeal the Cadillac tax. And you're seeing right now, mm-hmm. as we come closer to the Cadillac tax happening, the Cadillac tax being a tax on very expensive employer-provided insurance plans, that there is a lot of effort to repeal. I don't think it will be repealed, but it definitely could be. I'll put my chips down that it yeah, gets yeah, we're, we repealed, so we can circle back to but, this podcast. But either years. way, that was a good argument that Republicans then put this much longer lead time into their key entitlement reforms, and you don't see that much anger about it. It's just a sort of a political compromise that people on the right are just accept that they have to make. And it's a, it's an odd kind of political compromise, right? Because the idea is that okay, if you can't achieve full libertopia, right? You have to you have to settle for something less. So what you should settle for is an enormous cut delayed into the indefinite future rather than just like a small cut, right? <laughs> but it's like a much more politically convenient, kind you know, of. compromise where, right, you could circle back to it and you can get rid of the unpopular things as they become, you know, not a decade away, but, you know, one or two years I mean, away. I think it's actually hard to know, right? I mean, what is being proposed is so outside the realm of actual experience, right? To pass a law in 2017 that would radically change the nature of Medicare, but not until 2028, and only for a tiny, tiny fraction of Medicare recipients, I have no idea what would happen in 2028 if that actually came about. Mm-hmm. It's so, I, I can't think of anything remotely along those lines, right? You'd have this program that for its first several years, right, almost nobody was in. Right. Because everyone is too young or too old. Wouldn't, like, would people sign up? It, it all just seems a little, it's it's hazy. Mm-hmm. It's very hazy. It's, it's driven by, you know, a, a lot of these conversations, right? People are really interested. It's very high prestige in Washington to talk about the long-term budget picture. And you can draw these great charts, and, like, the CBO does them. Lots of people do them. And it's sometimes when you try to, like, bring them back to reality. Social Security is first passed in 1935. And you think about the 75-year time projection from then. And you're skipping World War II, uh, the Cold War, people traveled to the moon, the Cold War ends. Antibiotics become a thing. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, right. (laughs) suddenly there's like workable medical treatments. It's very challenging to bring some of those lines on a chart down to reality. There's an amazing CRS table I love that I'll put in show notes. Congressional Research Service. Yeah, that's the one. They do a bunch of research for Congress, as their name implies. But it shows each year the projection for when the Medicare trust fund would go bankrupt. It's obviously never gone bankrupt, but there's always these projections. They vary completely wildly. Like it's just always, sometimes it's two years away. Sometimes it's 15 years away. Because very but, small changes in growth right, rates across like no one, decades. No great. one expected, like in Medicare, you know, a new hepatitis C drug comes on the market and all of a sudden there's this massive cost or costs slow down a little bit. And it's just 
I think it's very interesting because it shows that all these projections that we rely on year after year are missing well, so much. Because obviously, so, if, so, and you, obviously could, they if you could forecast right. the future direction of medical technology, you would not be working at the Congressional <laughs> doing budget projections, right? Like you could make like billions on Wall Street with that, right? Like, and we could also just as a country just do some smart maneuvers around that and, and solve our budget problems in a much more in a much friendlier way. I think we should move on from this, but before we do, I need to fact check myself real quick. Okay. I had said earlier uh, in response to when I read an Alan Simpson quote that we were already moving Social Security towards 68. The current maximum it's going to reach is 67. So 68 would be a, an increase above that. Real-time fact-checking. Awesome. Let's talk about a sponsor, and then we'll come back with some exciting newsy topics. This episode of The Weeds is, is sponsored by Squarespace. You guys, if you've listened to this show before or, or probably any podcast, you, you know Squarespace. These are the people that help you build a professionally designed website. Uh, you don't need any real web skills. There's, there's no coding required, although they also do if you know a little code. They have the option to let you go in there and, and customize things, which which I think is great. Uh, having done websites myself in the Stone Ages, I can tell you it's it's a lot easier to use Squarespace, which which I use now, but I also do appreciate the ability to, to kind of tweak it. They've got these really great, easy-to-use tools. You know, you can drag and drop stuff. You can click. It's it's very intuitive. And if you sign up for a full year, uh, you get a, a free domain, so you can have a, a nice URL for yourself. Start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. You know, if you have any sort of slight, vague need for a website for, for yourself or, or for your business, this is really just like the easiest way to get one that'll look nice and will work great. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. So this week, while we are, are wonking out about retirement ages and, and entitlement programs, normal people are talking about a rather spectacular series of, of terrorist attacks that were carried out in Paris involving a, a large number of people, seemingly coordination uh, across several different countries. And, you know, it, it poses the question, in some ways particularly because this did not happen in the United States, France is an interesting middle ground. A lot of the times things happen in the developing world and nobody in America cares. Sometimes things happen in the United States, and it's like, well, America has to do something. France is a country that a lot of people have been to. People follow news about it a lot, but it's also not the, the USA. So we get to sort of observe a foreign country processing this. And, you know, we heard uh, the, the president of France vowed in his speech to wage merciless war against the people who perpetrated this. And and I saw the, the French newspapers, and this came up a lot. It would be recognizable to Americans. One of them said, cette fois c'est la guerre, this time it's war, right? So it's a big deal. They want to have a big response. And then the question kind of sitting here is like, well, what, what can France actually do war-wise that will improve this, right? So they're increasing the pace of bombings of the, the ISIS capital in Raqqa, but other people have already bombed that city, as it turns out, and they sort of, you know, you go when you start bombing someplace, you look down the list, and you're like, well, what, what would be good to bomb? And, and you hit that stuff. And then you're like, well, what else have we got? And what else have we got, right? <laughs> and there was a story in the New York Times, and it's it's hard to report out of the center of ISIS territory, but the, the Times' uh, Lebanon correspondent, whose name is escaping me, does a, a fantastic job of getting in touch with people living in Lebanon who have relatives who live inside ISIS territory. And so she's recounting a little bit secondhand what they're telling her, but it, but it's the best we can tell. And they're saying that the French are basically bombing nothing. 
that they're bombing stuff that has been bombed before and that ISIS has long since evacuated, that they're just sort of, you know, they're bombing stuff that was on the list, but that the American Air Force and Navy is not full of morons (laughs) who've just like forgotten to take out this terrorist headquarters that's somewhere. The uh, ISIS people have moved their things either into areas where they are sheltered by the civilian population and Western governments are, are reluctant to bomb, or it's hidden somewhere and we don't know where it is. But there's not great stuff left to do. But so you have this this emotional desire to do more. And to really do more in war terms about this, you would have to either start inflicting more civilian casualties, or you'd have to start putting more people on the ground. And Western governments so far have been very reluctant to do either of those things, basically because it's there it's a bad idea and will make the situation worse. Can I, can I yeah. abstract this out a little bit? I think that there, there is a big issue here that is present beyond the, the ISIS attack in Paris, which Bruce Schneier is a security expert. And, and, and one of the things that he really focuses on is the relative risks of different kinds of things. And, and, and part of the way he sort of came to prominence is by making this argument uh, in, in very vivid terms that terrorism is something that scares us very deeply but it's not if you look at what ends up killing Americans, people in first world nations generally. It's just not one of the really significant risks we face. Now, there's a tail risk issue around nuclear weapons and so forth, and we can, we can talk about that a little separately. But he has this great line that he told me once where he said, terrorism is a crime against the mind. And that is not to take anything away from the unbelievably horrible slaughter of actual people, the destruction of families, I mean, the wounded. It's obviously clearly also a crime against the the people who are directly affected. But I don't think it should take anything away from what happened in in Paris and, and its horror to say that in seven days, more people die from gun violence in America than died in the Paris attacks. And we do not have the reaction to that that we have to the Paris attacks or is the, the way those attacks are carried out create a feeling, even in a country that was not affected directly in terms of being there, of just tremendous deep vulnerability. A group like ISIS, but also a group before it like al-Qaeda, do not have the capacity to beat America on a battlefield. They can't do anything about our aircraft carriers. They don't have an air force. They are not going to invade us. It is not a war like that. What they are trying to do on some level is scare us into achieving their goals for them, whether that goal is getting us to stop bombing ISIS in the Middle East, whether that goal is, as it was to some degree for for al-Qaeda, to get us embroiled in endless wars in the Middle East that would destroy sort of the American empire by draining it of resources, whether that goal is simply to make us afraid. And uh, one of the big things that's come out that's begun to be clear as a direct response to the bombing and the the attack in Paris is a backlash against refugees. And ISIS hates these refugees and wants them turned away, wants them to be treated like garbage in Europe because then they can actually recruit from among this population. And I think the thing that's, that's really hard to deal with, and Matt, you wrote a very good piece about this and about the way the Obama administration thinks about it. But I think the thing that is very difficult about terrorism is that it pushes you towards emotional responses that are counterproductive, that the point of the tactic is that it puts you in a place where the thing that you want to do is to some degree also the thing the terrorist wants you to do. And that's why terrorism is really dangerous. It's not just the violence, it's this kind of psychological warfare of it. And 
I am not sure where we're going to end up on the other side of the Paris attacks, but if ISIS is able to launch four or five of these in different countries, I think they probably will be able, just watching the reaction. I think it will be very hard for the U.S. And, 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 other, and other nations that are affected to say, this is unbelievably horrible, but it's, we cannot get pulled into a land war in the Middle East over it because it, that, that's just going to end up killing more people. There is a real an inability to wisely fulfill the emotional needs that this kind of attack creates. Right. And it feels like very like a large scale version of like something we're all familiar with, of like picking a fight where you kind of prod someone and poke someone until they respond. Almost like the largest scale version of bullying, where you're trying to kind of goad someone into getting back at you. The thing I, you know, really was interested in Matt's piece that ran earlier this week on Fox, this idea that Great website. See, great website. This Vox.com website. Vox.com, V-O-X. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys Terrific have heard work. of it. But what I really found interesting, it's very hard to see the speech that Obama gives that's kind of similar to what Ezra was saying, that basically says, you know, these terrible things have happened, but, you know, we're not, we're not going to respond because of reasons X, Y, and Z, and we don't think it's the right thing. We don't think it'll be productive. So you're left with these options that the Obama administration doesn't seem to appear to think are good options or productive options or options that will make Americans safer in any way. But also this sort of situation, you know, seems to demand some kind of action. And that puts the administration in a very tough and delicate spot. And, and this is something I mean, I know that they that they worry about a lot because you can have a situation, right? In the late 1990s, there were actually things the Clinton administration wanted to do against al-Qaeda that they could not do that they thought were politically not feasible, that he was not going to work to put a lot of weapons and manpower into helping the Northern Alliance defeat the Taliban. And, and Richard Clark was like working on these plans. You know, he had them. And I don't know if Al Gore tells himself in his heart that like he would have rolled it out if, if he had won the election. But the fact is, is that machinery was not going anywhere because people didn't think it was a real issue, even though the experts thought it was a real issue, like the public and the political system, you know, really sort of didn't. And the FBI had this wish list of civil liberties crushing ideas that they had drawn up in the wake of Oklahoma City and that congressional Republicans who at the time were into privacy had stopped them from doing. And so then 9-11 happens and there was stuff that people in the government had evaluated. And rightly or wrongly, they thought it was a good idea, good counterterrorism policy. And so they did that. The Obama administration finds itself operating in a climate where everybody thinks terrorism, particularly Islamic extremist terrorism, is a big problem. And in fact, they think it's not as big a problem as many of the other actors in the political system, right? They are on the more dovish end of the spectrum. So they are already doing all of the things that they think it's a good idea to do, right? And if something terrible happened, right, if dozens, hundreds, even thousands of people were killed by terrorists tomorrow, it doesn't change the fact that the Obama administration has already bombing all the stuff that they think it makes sense to bomb, that they are already doing the foreign policy that they think is the correct one. But you see, right, uh, of course, Francois Hollande did not respond to this terrorist attack by saying, you know what, this is a complicated problem. The West has already been working on it for a number of years. We really think that doing more stuff would be uh, useless or, or possibly even counterproductive. So we're just going to kind of keep on, keep on mm -hmm. keeping on, right? You, you have to say something. And it's particularly challenging for the Obama administration because they know that there are lots of people who want them to do 
other kinds of stuff, right? I mean, there's agencies that want more funding. There's John McCain and Lindsey Graham in, in the Senate who probably want us to invade a thousand countries. And, and you really fear stuff like Mike Huckabee said right after Paris attack that this shows that we need to cancel the deal with Iran. And now that makes no logical sense. The two <laughs> things have nothing to do with each other. But as we saw when the United Indeed, States... maybe not having... Iran not having a nuclear weapon is the kind of thing that this would make you worry Right. About. But I mean, not even that, yeah, right? Like right. They're Iran not, they're not like, is fighting ISIS, right? It's, it's nonsense. Right. But you saw after 9-11, right? So we invaded Iraq. According to, to Richard Clark, Don Rumsfeld at one point said that, well, there's no good targets to bomb in Afghanistan, but they had this like longstanding desire to invade Iraq, so it became a good reason to do it. They threw Iran into an axis of evil in a speech. So Iran, which had been saying, oh, hey, you know, we've been actually trying to fight these Taliban guys for a while. Why don't we collaborate? All of a sudden was like, holy shit, like, they're coming <laughs> after us too, right? Because that's what that's what happens. It becomes a reason to just sort of take off the shelf like any old thing that anybody wants to do. Well, and there's evidence right now, like not that necessarily things are working, but that ISIS is possibly losing in a way. I found Zach Beecham's piece also on great website, Vox.com, where he was talking to Brooking, I think Brooking. Will McCants. Will McCants, yeah. which we'll put in show notes. What um, a great book on ISIS if you're Yeah, interested. and you know, he did a fascinating interview over the weekend after the Paris attacks. Basically his and McCant's theory of why these attacks were happening right now is that essentially ISIS is is losing ground, they're losing space, they have less territory than they used to, and that they are kind of lashing out in this way to get more attention, to kind of almost pull us into, you know, some yeah. of the things that are happening. Yeah, you know, I think this speaks to Ezra's point about the psychology of terrorism. It's really hard to reconcile what happens in Paris with the idea that that ISIS is losing. Right. It feels very separate. But ISIS feels very more powerful, but there's actually evidence of the opposite. It's also partially because ISIS is a very unusual kind of actor. ISIS is both a quasi-state actor, and now they're becoming a sort of... They, we've always connected them correctly because they initially began as a branch of them with al-Qaeda, but they didn't initially really have the same goals as al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was, you know, they had a sort of long-term apocalyptic caliphate scenario, but in the near term, they were launching attacks on Western targets. I mean, that was really why we cared about them. ISIS has been very focused on building a caliphate in the Middle East right now, and, and, and a caliphate, a, a state. They are holding territory. They are running oil money. They are administering their version of justice. I mean, they have they a are, flag. They have a flag. They did not want to be in a war with the West, at least not mm -hmm. initially. What they wanted was to be left alone to create the caliphate. Mm -hmm. And then they started being bombed by the West. And now, as McCann says, they've lost about 20 to 25 percent of their territory. And so now they are developing a hybrid role as an international terrorist organization as well, although one of the more defined base of operations. So we're saying that al-Qaeda also had a reasonably defined base of operations at different times in Afghanistan, in, in Somalia at another point. But, but it wasn't – they weren't – the government in the mm -hmm. way that, that ISIS is a government. I also think that it's important here to distinguish between two things that we often conflate when we talk about terrorism. And it's not that they are both terrorism, but they are, they're very different in their effects. Al-Qaeda's attack in, on 9-11 was a really spectacular attack using very unusual weapons, right? They, they crashed planes into things, which is the closest you can get if you don't have it of, of launching a missile at America. The thing we worried about after 9-11, though, wasn't 
guns and it wasn't even suicide bombs. We worried it would get more spectacular. We were worried, and not just spectacular, but deadly. We worried about biological agents. We worried about chemical agents. We worried about nuclear weapons. We worried about weapons of mass destruction. That was the key word, right? The whole time. That's why we, in theory, went into Iraq. That's what we were worried would happen. Right now, from what we can tell, and, and I mean, we you can't tell the future 100%, but there's been a lot of work, and I don't know if it's enough, but a lot of work on the part uh, of America to try to fortify against nuclear weapons, against chemical weapons, against biological weapons. That is something that Obama has a very deep abiding interest going back to his time in the Senate with, with Richard Lugar on nuclear nonproliferation, on loose fissile materials. And there's a lot to be afraid of there, but, but that is something where a lot of different actors, U.S. included, feel that they have cut the possibility quite substantially. There's more confidence when you talk to people about these issues now than there was 10 years ago. What ISIS did in Paris, as spectacular as it was, was very crude. It was suicide bombers and it was guns. And when you talk to the Obama administration, they do not think that they can, with 100% certainty or even something close to that, ensure that no one is ever going to get into America, either an American who has been turned by ISIS and already lives here or somebody ISIS somehow has managed to, to bring in on, on bad papers. They're not sure they can keep anyone from ever getting into America, taking advantage of our incredibly easy gun buying system and going into a mall and shooting a bunch of people. But that happens now. It happens in theaters now. It I mean, we know, right, now. that we cannot stop yeah. people from getting... And we've decided not to do really anything mm -hmm. to stop it, like even small things. And so they're kind of caught in this in this very strange position where they're terrified that this can happen. They know that on some level they can do what they can to prevent it, but they can't get anywhere near perfect certainty that they can prevent it. But that the cost is something that on the one hand, America has already decided it's willing to pay on some level. We are willing to pay this cost of continuous gun deaths in order to not have more of a crackdown on weaponry. On the other hand, if a terrorist does it, the reaction is going to be very, very, very different in this country and might lead to, and it could be under a future president too, and might lead to America getting involved in conflicts that are really long-term very, very bad for us. But I do think that you see, there, there was actually a, a House Republican explicitly said that one of the reasons we can't let Syrian refugees oh, in yes. is, that, is that it's far too easy to get guns in the United States. So, I mean, I, I do think that you're starting to see, and, and this is, you know, when we talked about guns several episodes ago, I mean, I, I talked about it, it's, it's just connection to people's cultural values, right? And so to people of a liberal cosmopolitan mindset, right, it goes without saying that the United States needs to be welcoming to refugees, but it does not go without saying that the United States needs to be a place where it's super easy to get long guns with big magazines and you can shoot lots of people with them. But there's another point of view, right, that's like just the opposite. And it's like, well, to preserve our status as a, a land of liberty where it's easy access to guns, we need to really have stringent population control in terms of who is actually present in the United States. Because there is consensus, right, that we do not have, as the laws are currently set up, we just don't have a system in place to prevent out of hundreds of millions of people living in the United States and hundreds of millions of guns in the United States. Someone is going to get a gun, is going to get some ISIS propaganda material, and is going to shoot some people. We have enough people with guns shooting a bunch of people that it just seems inevitable that one of them will Hook or up. some other terrorist organization. Yeah, notionally with yeah. something, you know, and we even had a couple things that have sort of walked up close to this, right? But we've never had this explicit connection to some kind of an international terrorist organization. But we have the shootings constantly. I, I'm not constantly, but 
multiple times a year, right? It's not like a outlandish hypothetical at all, right? And you can make connections, you know, through the internet. People who are citizens of European countries can travel to the United States without visas. Mm -hmm. So it's almost an inevitability, it seems to me. And there's a really difficult question of what are we but, going to do when it happens? This seems to me, and, and I don't know what... I don't know what the comment I'm about to make, the observation I'm about to make would even imply, but it does seem to me that insofar as terrorism is meant to be yeah, a kind of psychological warfare, is meant to elicit certain kinds of reactions, that the time to deal with that is not after a terrorist attack. I am, uh, and we can talk about this in a future episode maybe, but I am for the most part a I'm very skeptical of presidential messaging as a way to get basically anything done ever. But I do think that this is something the Obama administration worries about. It's something that the next president, depending on their temperament, will will have to worry about. And at some point, I think it needs to be part of a discussion with Congress and, and to some degree with the American people that this is a world we live in and, and, and we need to recognize that these enemies of ours, thankfully, are weak. This is not the Soviet Union. And that the thing they can do is is terrify us. Eric Erickson is a um, is a conservative pundit, and he lives in Georgia, I believe. And and he said on his radio show that he's afraid to go to the Star Wars opening because it's a potential terrorist target. And on, I think he got kind of made fun of for this, given that he also often wants to launch a lot of wars and and so forth. But I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that this is how it feels to everyone. I mean, it makes sense that maybe ISIS would decide that the way to really scare Americans is to launch attacks in a bunch of mid-sized American cities on a moment when people are just going and, and having a good time watching Star Wars. But we are going to have to, you know, in the long course of this country, to some degree, figure out a way to fortify ourselves against both the actual attacks, but also the, the kind of terror that would follow them. I'll also, I'll actually say that the best reaction, and I know it's become a cliche on the internet to be like the John Oliver clip this week, <laughs> um, but I actually thought John Oliver had a really, who's an HBO comedian, had a really good reaction to this, where he basically had this segment where he cursed at ISIS for a while, and then he just said, you're going to fight a war with France over culture? Good fucking luck. You're not going to you are not going to win at anything you are trying to do. And he is right. They are not going to win at anything they're trying to do and and we we're going to need to somehow come to a place where hopefully where we can mourn the victims of these kinds of attacks as we should. I mean, nothing we're saying here should be should take away from the tremendous tragedy in Paris where we can fortify ourselves against them in, in ways that are reasonable, but that we can also admit, as we've admitted in with cars, as we've admitted with gun deaths, as we've admitted with people eating fatty foods and getting heart disease, that just living in the modern world brings risks that we are not willing to do everything we can to eliminate. If that's how we feel, if that is a decision we want to make on the front end, then we have to be prepared on the back end to say, what just happened is horrible. We are going to do everything we can to prevent it. We are going to respond in ways that are smart, but we are, we are not going to change everything we believed up until this point. So, you know, something that gives me a, a little hope when I'm looking for inspiration, that it, it actually is possible psychologically to maintain this, is in the late 19th and, and early 20th century, there was this a 20-year span of time from 1894 until World War One breaks out 20 years later, when anarchists were killing people willy-nilly. They killed the president of France. They killed the prime minister of Spain. They killed the empress of Austria. They shot and killed the king of Italy. They shot and killed the president of the United States, tried to 
kill the, the, the king of Belgium. They did kill the king of Spain. They killed the king of Portugal. Uh, there was a bomb thrown in Union Square. There were a couple wow. of sporadic <laughs> shootings here. The chief of police of Buenos Aires was shot. Uh, a nail bomb went off in the French parliament. The Russian prime minister was shot. The head of the Russian Secret we Service was shot. We need a whole episode shot. just on this. The prime minister of Spain, uh, for a second prime minister of Spain, was killed. <laughs> the king of Greece. Uh, then there was a, a bomb went off in, in John Rockefeller's house, uh, but he, he wasn't around. But they killed like five guys there. And, and this kind of stuff was happening. It's unthinkable these days, honestly, that attacks of that scale would go off. Like these people have security personnel, right? Like nobody w- would remotely dream that you could kill successively multiple European heads of state. It's mind-boggling. The idea, the, the anarchist theory of this, it was called propaganda of the deed. And and the idea was that, okay, they were going to shoot these people and it was going to expose the sort of hollow, rotten core of the somewhat democratic political systems of the time. And the crackdown was going to be so severe, the mask would slip and, and workers would see and there would be a revolution. And it just didn't happen. Security measures were taken. This is why nowadays uh, there is security around heads of government. So you can't can't just walk up and stab them the way uh, you, you used to with, with with these different people in a sort of profound sense, like nothing was done, right? They just got bodyguards for these people. And so you could kill someone who doesn't have bodyguards. And it just kind of faded, right? A, a little bit mysteriously. World War One happened. I mean, ideologies changed, but they didn't do that much. And to be fair, World War One is an example of a political murder leading to Significant consequences. Yes, although not an anarchist. Right, not an anarchist. I just <laughs> want to know. But just to say, there wasn't a war on anarchism, right? right? There was an understanding that this was actually was the strategy. They were trying to do enough crazy shit that the governments of the world would do something crazy in response and the whole system would come crashing down. And so the governments of the world, they just, they, they didn't. They enjoyed their Victorian world order. And so they decided they were going to stick with it and they were going to make changes around the edges to make it harder to stab people. And we actually had in France a success story, right, that the security guards at the stadium prevented a bomber from getting in there. And so he blew the bomb up on the street, right? And it's difficult to call something like that a security success story because so many people did die, but so many fewer people died than if they hadn't had that in place. And that's the kind of thing that you can do, right? You can make it so that they can't kill the president and throw the government into disarray, that they can't blow up a stadium and kill thousands of people, that they can't get a nuclear bomb and destroy a city. But it does mean that you have to you have to sort of take those as wins on some level, that really determined killers are going to be able to find some ways to kill some people. And there's not that much you can really do about it, but you can try to keep your society intact. And that's, it seems to me, you know, what they did in those in those pre-World War One years. And it's something that we have, I think, largely gotten away from in the West, that idea of building some resiliency so that we, we know that we're going to survive through this and that the problem may endure for, for actually for quite a while, but that ultimately our political systems will outlast this problems. It's a good point. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> I right. think we should move to our data set of the week. Right. We're going to get totally wild. Instead of doing a white paper of the week, do a data set of the week. 
and big. yes, it's it's new ground for the weeds. The data set today comes from Amino, which is a health startup in San Francisco, and they shared with me some really interesting data they've collected on C-sections. This is a company they collect de-identified insurance claims, so they have data on over four million births that have happened in the United States. Since and what 2010. is a C-section, Sarah? And a C-section is basically a surgical delivery of a baby. It's a pretty routine surgery. The risks are low, but however, the risks are much lower of having a traditional vaginal birth. The risk of dying during delivery, while rare in any case, is four times higher for a C-section than for a vaginal birth. But we've had this really big rise in C-sections over the past two decades. Doctors and patients like C-sections because they make birth more predictable. You can literally schedule a C-section at 2 o'clock on Tuesday and you don't have your baby at a particular time. And, and just real quick, there, there's some kind of births where you do need a C-section. There are definitely what some. What we're talking about here is yes. healthy So, births. you know, I'm a twin. Yeah. My mom had a C-section because for multiple babies, you're recommended mm-hmm. to have a C-section. But for uncomplicated, low-risk births of single babies, typically a vaginal delivery is, you know, the preferred route. But you've had this just huge increase in C-sections over the past about 20 years. It's been coming down over three years as doctors have been working against this. Anyways, what this data set from Amino shows is just this huge variation in C-section rates by zip code. One of the biggest examples of variation I found in their data set is if you look at these two New York City suburbs, one in New Jersey, one in New York, one of them has a 70% C-section rate, one of them has a 9% C-section rate. The national average, depending on whose data you use, hovers between high 20%, um, low 30%. And it's just this huge variation that really suggests that doctors are practicing medicine very differently in different mm-hmm. places, that they are doing things that, that whether you have a C-section, it depends a bit on you know if you have a high-risk pregnancy, how old you are, some other characteristics. But it also just depends on, you know, does your doctor like to schedule things? One of my coworkers at Fox, when I was working on this story, mentioned to me a story about you know her sister's delivery, and she was due on the day of the Super Bowl, and the doctor wanted to watch the Super Bowl, which is fair. <laughs> and the doctor's like, okay, do you want to have this baby the day before or after the Super Bowl? And kind of like, it's easier to schedule births, but there's also, and there's evidence it's happening. There's evidence it's happening in some places more than others. And there's evidence that that increases the risk of giving birth in the United States. And, and this speaks to something I think that we do not like to think about in the medical system. But I think the mental model people have of how their doctor operates is that they come in presenting some kind of symptom, uh, appendicitis, or they're going to have a child, or they their back hurts, or whatever it might be. And the doctor goes into the back and sort of like opens up this book. And when you open up the book, there's light coming out of the pages. And it just says, if the back hurts, do this. Or if there's a child, if a child needs to be born and these are the conditions, do that. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that culture changes really dramatically city to city in America. And that really changes how doctors practice medicine, that this kind of hewing to what we would think of as an accepted best practice. In a lot of cases, there aren't best practices. In some cases, the best practices are not based on any good evidence. In some cases, they're actually outdated by the time doctors are using them. But you have very, very, very different cultures in different cities and in different hospitals and in different areas that lead to very different kinds of medicine being practiced. So, you know, the C-section example you give, if you are a doctor in a hospital where it is normal to schedule C-sections, you won't think about that at all. And if you're a doctor in a hospital where there's been a push in recent years to get rid of C-sections or or, or to make them as as small a percentage of births as you can possibly have, that will feel very different. And 
I, I don't think people like kind of facing up to how much of medicine is not evidence-based, how much of it is mm -hmm. doctors choosing between a range of options, some of them good and, and honestly some of them bad. And for reasons based sometimes on evidence, sometimes on culture, sometimes on convenience, sometimes on payment incentives, sometimes on structures, sometimes on things we're not thinking about here, that the kind of medicine you get can just vary tremendously depending on which hospital the ambulance right. brought you and to. And one thing I learned about this example I cited in New York and New Jersey that I didn't know until I wrote the article, I got an email from a local reporter there about how much culture has played a role there. She, I didn't realize this, there's a huge Hasidic Jewish population huh. in the New York suburb that has a very low C-section rate. A lot of the women there are planning to have lots and lots of babies, so they don't want to have a C-section, which could require a C-section each time that, is super interesting. that they have a baby. So this hospital, she I'm, she told me will that- Will you write this up? Yes, I will put, put this it on. on site. Yes, <laughs> but except by time people listen to this podcast, will already be on the internet. Wow. But you know, also, if, if but, I can yeah. if I can mansplain childbirth to you for, for a minute- <laughs> Go on, Matt. Um, you are the only one here who has a child, so I will give you- some, yes, some authority um, on that. Women who I have spoken to who have had multiple children almost universally say that the subsequent ones were easier. So uh, another possible who have had C sections, who have had no, 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 traditional, right? That the that the later labors are faster yeah. and easier than mm -hmm. than the earlier ones. So one of the issues with the Hasidic women and and the large families is that they are more C section averse with that first kid because they are mm -hmm. planning to have many and they don't want to have many abdominal surgeries. But the other is that the childbirths in that population may be much more skewed toward second, third, fourth kids than you would have in an average population. And so like when I talked to the doctors, uh, or rather when my wife pestered the doctors and administrators at Sibley about their a hospital uh, here in D.C., in DC they're sort of on the high side of the range of C-sections. They attributed it to the demographics of the population that they have, which is a little bit older than the national average and a little bit more first births than, than the national average. So I, I do think that the variation from zip code to zip code is very telling, but it tells us about the patient characteristics as well as about the healthcare providers. And, and right. one thing that I think is, is interesting there, so Atul Gawande did a, a fantastic article on the rise of C section births a number of years ago. It's collected in one of his books. Um, we'll figure out which one to put in the show notes. But one of the points he made in there is that one reason C section is very popular is that they're actually. They're not a, a riskless surgery, but they are a simple mm -hmm. one. And in births can present in many, many different ways. And, and natural birth and, and making sure you're able to have a safe natural birth actually requires a higher level of skill than teaching people how to do C-sections, which can be done pretty mechanically. And so you can have places where you have just really great childbirth teams. But those are often hospitals that are a little bit bigger, a little bit more, you know, sometimes a little bit more urban, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and are making sort of an effort on this. Whereas, you know, you have places where very low-level complications, complications for a birth that could be dealt with, but are being looked at by maybe a team of maybe a, a doctor who has too many patients who are pregnant now anyway, or maybe doesn't have that much training, isn't that comfortable, and they're not that near a major medical center. And so C-sections in those cases can, can become a kind of a fallback maneuver that begins happening often because it allows things to just be scheduled, predictable, and easily replicable with relatively limited I mean, training. typically when you have an obstetrician on shift, right, it would not be unusual for the doctor to be supervising multiple labors simultaneously. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a situation where if you have two or more 
mothers experiencing moderately complicated childbirth, you get a situation where the conjunction of them mm-hmm. becomes a harder situation to handle. Whereas, as you say, they actually can just sort of space out. You don't even need a surgeon uh, right. to, to, to do a C-section. The obstetricians do them. My son was born via C-section after a very lengthy uh, and ultimately not not going anywhere <laughs> labor and like the the actual surgery is right. lightning compared to the yeah I heard one anecdote agony as, of childbirth. yeah I heard one anecdote as I was working on this story via a friend of an obstetrician about noticing an uptick in C sections at the end of the day like once you get to four or five p.m. what kind of doctors are like looking to get home they're kind of like looking to get out of the office and you kind of see them pick up a little bit in the late afternoon but also yeah. patients and, are looking to not patients, go through another yes. shift change yes. another handover to a set of new right. people they've maybe gotten comfortable they've been working with right. a nurse and a doctor for hours on this feel that they've formed a relationship with them right. and now everyone's saying you could keep on with this, <laughs> right. but like we're getting out of here. <laughs> and one of the hard things about driving down the C-section rate is once you have a C-section, you're much likely to have one for your second birth. In this amino data, it was 91% of women who have a C-section for the first birth have a C-section for subsequent wow. births. Just because you know now that you've had the surgery, it's a little harder to have a traditional delivery. So that's you know I think one of the things that's going on here in these like high rates is that. It's showing people who come back, and they're near certainly, like nine out of ten times, are going to have another C-section. And that's one of the things that makes it a little bit difficult to change these rates. And, you know, you really have to start with women who haven't had any babies and have this kind of culture change that's going on at the same time of, you know, treating people differently from your older patients who are coming back for a second birth or third child. What is the case against, quote-unquote, too many C-sections. Like, what is the problem that is attempting to be introduced here? I mean, it would be convenient for uh, health insurance companies who prefer to have mom do the work uncompensated (laughs) rather than than, than pay for it. It really is the prime definition of uncompensated labor. Right. It's really really difficult. And they they don't reimburse you at all. Whereas, like, in the the surgery room, there's, like, a whole bunch of people standing around. Yeah. So I think the case is twofold. One is cost. Obviously, C-section deliveries are much more expensive than traditional vaginal deliveries. The other is risk, that whenever you have a surgery, there's, you know, risk associated with it. There's more risk. There's more recovery time. Like I said, you know, we started earlier that the risk of death is low in any case. Like giving a baby is or having a baby, you know, an uncomplicated pregnancy is a very safe thing to do in the United States right now. But the risk of maternal death, when I was looking up the statistics from um, the, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, there are four times as many maternal deaths with C-sections than there are with traditional mm-hmm. deliveries. So the case, is, the case against C-section is basically it costs more. There's more risk to the, to the woman. So if you can, a traditional delivery is preferred. At the same time, you know, I think it's fair to acknowledge that you kind of have these trade-offs between like risk and like 40 hours of labor. Maybe that increased risk is something you're willing to. To accept. Well, and also, I mean, I I remember when I had my my wisdom teeth out, and they're asking me, you know, do you want us to do a local anesthetic or Mm -hmm. should we do a general anesthetic? And I was like, definitely general anesthetic. And they were like, okay, but I mean, before we give you a general anesthetic, we do have to tell you, you you might die. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas you're like really not going to die from us taking the teeth out. General anesthetic, it's pretty safe. 
we're allowed to do it, but sometimes people die. And I thought about it, and I was like, I'm, I'm taking the general, <laughs> right? And so one of the issues in, in childbirth is that when they give you an epidural anesthetic that is consistent with, it's safe for the baby, that greatly increases the chance that you wind up having a C-section in the end because it's harder. You can't move uh, mm -hmm. when you have epidural in. And the way that they get mispositioned babies to try to, like, come back around is through the not super scientific way of they kind of, like, bounce mom around and have you walk and have you, like, sit on yoga balls and hope that the, that the baby will turn. And they know that giving that epidural and having you lay in bed makes it harder to get the turn, which makes it harder to do the vaginal delivery and more likely that, that you ultimately have, have the C-section. So on one level, you are facing that same wisdom tooth trade-off. I mean, there's a couple of stages of delay, but it's like something very painful is happening. They have an effective pain treatment, but it does increase the chances that you're gonna wind up needing to have a surgery. And the surgery, though quite safe as far as surgeries go, is more dangerous than not having the surgery. And yet, you know, we do let people having their wisdom teeth out get the general anesthetic, even though uh, there's some number of lives, I guess. And we, we do we do let women have C-sections. Oh, no, no, Public no, of health course. cases against, and I wanted to clarify one thing I should have said earlier, really the cases against scheduled C-sections. So these C-sections you schedule for a day, you come into the hospital. So ah. kind of dissimilar from your wife's case where you, you know, were trying out the, you know, traditional... And we were delivery. in there. You were in there. But it's really these scheduled C-sections that there's no case for... There's there's not a strong case for those. And, and we know they're happening. There's this amazing graph in the amino data that you can find on Vox that shows this Great big, website. Yeah. <laughs> I, I keep reading that website. It's so good. This is like, there's um, like no babies born there's on no babies Christmas, born on, right? There's no C-sections on Christmas. Okay. When you like look at C-section rates, you see it like starting to drop Christmas Eve. The lowest day for C-sections of any day of the year is Christmas Day because like no one is scheduling. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like unless someone really wants a Christmas birthday. But um, is that in part because they schedule induced labors around that, right, which is a, a separate? That could be part of it as well. I think like definitely because you're seeing the C-section rate drop so much right, on right, those right. days. And you see it on weekends, weekdays, where weekends there's a lot less C-sections than weekdays, that people are practicing medicine differently depending on the day of the week. Huh. <laughs> we have nothing else. That's it. It's a good episode. Why well, we have more episodes. Yeah. I, I hope. You can go back in our, our episode archive on iTunes where you should also review us. Yes. Yes. Always, always be reviewing us on iTunes and ideally listening to the show. If you've reached this point, in fact, I, I thank you for listening. This has been a, a, another episode of The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'd like to thank our sponsors this week, Squarespace, our producer, AC Valdez. And we will not be having an episode next week uh, because of the Thanksgiving holiday, but we will be back uh, after that with uh, more weedsy, wonky awesomeness. Thank you for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>